Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, my name is David Myers. I'm a professor of history at the UCLA History Department and the director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of Then and Now. Uh, we're fortunate today to have three Luskin Center research fellows who've been at work on a really timely piece of research exploring how local and state government in California has responded to previous public health crises. A good part of what we do at the Luskin Center is to explore the past in order to make sense of the present and to help plan for a better future. And it's in that regard that I'm really delighted to welcome Kirsten Morshili, Jessica Richards, and Tal Khagati to Then and Now. Dr. Kirsten Morshili is a postdoctoral fellow in the history of medicine at Cedar sinai and a visiting assistant professor of history at UCLA. Jessica Richards is a PhD candidate in community health sciences at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And Talak Elgati is a third year graduate student studying economics and public affairs at UCLA. So friends, as you know, we're living through a global pandemic that has altered the way we see and act in the world. Many things about this pandemic are unprecedented the scale, the closures, the cessation of normal activity, indeed of the global economy. And yet pandemics and epidemics are not unprecedented, nor is the attempt by governments at various levels to respond to them. What can we learn from past public health crises of major scale? How did the state of California and the city of Los Angeles respond to past crises? What was the role of the federal government? Did we see the same level of disconnect between state and federal jurisdictions that we see now in the current moment. The Luskin Center research team has been looking into the history of pandemics and epidemics in 20th century Californian history. And I'd like now to turn to the then portion of our conversation before we turn to the lessons learned now. So Kirsten, you focused on the 1918 influenza epidemic in your research, also known as the Spanish flu. Can you give us a sense of what it looked like here in Los Angeles? Yeah, so the influenza pandemic of 1918, uh, 1919 was one of the most devastating disease outbreaks in history, killing somewhere between one and 3% of the world's population. Uh, and it occurred during the tail end of World War I, which was an intense, a time of intense global travel. Um, Altogether, the epidemic in the U.S. killed about 675,000 people. Uh, and influenza hit the U.S. particularly hard in the fall and winter of 1918 during the so-called second wave of this epidemic. Um, the much briefer and kind of lighter uh, first wave occurred in the spring of 1918. Um, the epidemic hit the East Coast first around August and early September, um, making it to California's big coastal cities around mid-September, mid to late September. Um, as occurred in many port cities, some of the first cases in Los Angeles were reported among military personnel uh, mobilizing during the uh, concurrent war. Um, 
More specifically, a naval vessel arrived in Los Angeles Harbor in mid-September reporting cases of influenza. And officials at the Naval Reserve Station there placed the installation under quarantine on September 28th. Um, unfortunately, this didn't contain the disease, though, as the first civilian cases had already appeared in LA by September 22nd. So cases of influenza and pneumonia, which was a common complication of influenza, uh, increased steadily in the city beginning the second week of October. Uh, and deaths from the epidemic peaked during the last week of October, first week of November, totaling just under 400, or sorry, 400 deaths uh, for the week. Um, and then after that, influenza began to decline steadily over the month of November, creating a bit of a false sense of hope as cases very soon began rising again uh, in the winter. Um, as of kind of mid-March 1919, when deaths had pretty much subsided from this second wave of the epidemic, uh, Los Angeles had recorded about uh, 3,184 deaths from influenza and pneumonia just during this, this second wave of the epidemic, um, and a death rate of roughly 494 per 100,000 people. Now these statistics compare favorably with San Francisco, which had a slightly smaller population actually by 1918, and San Francisco recorded about 3,755 deaths during that same period, uh, with a death rate uh, from the epidemic of about 673 per 100,000. Um, and it's important to remember, of course, that influenza was not a reportable disease at the beginning of this epidemic. And so, and, you know, things were also pretty chaotic uh, during the fall and winter of 1918. So these statistics can give us a general idea, uh, a general sense of what happened, but um, it's very difficult to tell entirely or completely this epidemic's full extent. So can you give us a sense of what steps were taken um, at the various levels of uh, government acting? Uh, sure. So, you know, one of the first things to mention is that, you know, municipal and health officials kind of at all levels were caught off guard by the virulence and intensity of this influenza epidemic in the U.S. So health officers, not just in Los Angeles, but in cities across the U.S., did not expect the flu to be very deadly or to kind of last as long as uh, it really did. Um, so they were not very prepared for an event of this magnitude. Um, and this, of course, was complicated by the exigencies of, of war, um, which took a lot of attention and concern. Um, certainly at the federal level, the U.S. Public Health Service did not have uh, the resources or capacity to meet the spike in demand for nurses from states. States were, uh, you know, requesting help in, in form of nurses and nursing care, and uh, the federal government just could not meet that demand. Um, the Red Cross tried to help recruit nurses and send them to posts where they were needed, but still there was a severe shortage um, of this, uh, med this medical personnel. Um, and public health departments across the country weren't really coordinated either um, by the, the time this epidemic began. And so we really see a bulk of the response coming at kind of the local level, uh, especially at the level of cities. Um, so Los Angeles actually took action a bit earlier than cities that encountered the flu around a similar time. 
So LA Mayor Frederick Thomas Woodman called a state of public health emergency on October 11th, so fairly early in October, um, doing things like banning public gatherings, clothing, uh, closing schools and certain businesses, such as theaters, bars and restaurants. Um, he even canceled the October Liberty Loan Parade, which San Francisco did not do. They, on the other hand, continued with that large public event. Um, uh, the mayor also appointed a medical advisory board to help support the city health commissioner, Luther Powers, as they um, decided on and instituted various public health measures, things like a citywide cleanup week, um, an ordinance calling on tenants to clean in front of their, their residences, and staggered business hours to reduce crowding on streetcars. Um, Health Commissioner Powers also worked with the City Council to allot funds and distribute funds to establish emergency hospitals and isolation stations and vacant buildings, things like hotels, um, to care for the mounting toll of, of sick, sick people um, in the city. Um, and there were some kind of differences statewide in, in terms of local responses. Certainly one thing we see is you know, San Francisco instituted an ordinance requiring people to wear masks in public, while uh, the LA City Council ultimately decided uh, against instituting such a mandatory order, instead just asking people to follow state requirements for wearing masks, um, particularly, you know, if you're a health professional or if you were sick. Um, and nonetheless, the mortality rate was lower in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly, I think one reason this might be the case, though, you know, it can be hard to attribute things completely, is that uh, Los Angeles did institute some of these public health measures, things like closures, um, about a week earlier than San Francisco. Um, and what do, we, um, what do we know about the level of intergovernmental cooperation um, from this uh, period in October um, moving forward, that is to say, between uh, local and federal levels? Yeah, it seemed, you know, a lot of the coordination or a lot of the kind of communication going on between federal, um, state, and local levels uh, occurred around kind of tracking cases. That was something the federal government was like could be involved in. So cities um, reporting to states, states reporting to the federal level about the number of cases of this epidemic. So tracking the extent of it. Um, but a lot of kind of public health action really um, took place among cities. It seemed like, you know, the state, the governor was making some recommendations, public health recommendations, um, for example, for a voluntary mask order, um, but cities decided for themselves, kind of amongst themselves, which measures to institute uh, and when to institute them. Um, and certainly I think cities learned from each other, saw what each other was, was doing, um, as they did take very similar measures, um, but it seems like a lot of action really uh, occurred on kind of city the city local level. Mm, thank you. Um, I want to now turn to Tala, um, you know, because one of the things we think about today um, 
right after we um, try and wrap our minds around the enormity of the public health crisis uh, are the economic consequences. Um, and you looked into the economic impact of uh, the flu of 1918. And we're curious to know what you found um, in LA in particular. Um, anything surprising? Yeah, so I think before even talking about the economic impact on its own, it's important to recognize something that Kirsten highlighted earlier, which is that the economic impact of the flu and World War One, or the impact of either of those things, it's, it's hard to delineate between or determine which is which. Um, but I think um, a lot of economists have taken a stab at this and done a very good job. So when we look specifically to LA, we see that a majority of individuals who were succumbing to the flu were in quote unquote, their prime of life. Um, in other words, they were working age individuals, largely from the ages of 15 to 50, as opposed to what we see right now with COVID-19, or at least what we hypothesized earlier on in this crisis is that largely the elderly were dying. I mean, there's still debate about that, but with the Spanish flu, it was very clear. It was those people who were going to work that were succumbing from the flu. Now, because of this, economists were able to hypothesize that because we saw the death of working age individuals, um, there was an increase, surprisingly, in the marginal product of labor and capital per worker, which then translated to an increase in real wages. And now, in layman's terms, what that means is that because there was the same number of jobs but less people to work them, the people that were still remaining alive saw that the value of their labor increased. And because they were, they were more valuable as workers, their wages also um, witnessed an increase as well. Um, and then when looking at the economic data, I think that it, it shows that it really backs up this hypothesis and economists were able to model using nationwide data that one more death per thousand led to an average annual increase in economic growth of 0.2% per year for the next 10 years. So not only is the modeling predicting an increase in economic growth, um, the, data, the data shows this as well and that's increasing, incredibly surprising um, given what we're seeing with COVID right now and comparing it to our present day reality. Um, but the economic mm. impacts were not just limited to um, the death of manufacturing workers, they were also tied into public health responses. Um, so as Kirsten also alluded to, Los Angeles, for example, um, acted very emphatically in limited social and civic interactions. Um, and in today's terms, it was very effective at quote unquote social distancing. So cities and localities that did a, a lot more social distancing also saw more economic growth following that period of restrictions. Um, that includes higher manufacturing employment and output. And compared to cities that did not implement those measures, they didn't see that level of economic growth. Thank you. Um, really interesting and somewhat counterintuitive um, uh, uh, data points about uh, the impact of the flu uh, in 1918. I'd like now to move ahead 60 years to another major epidemic to strike uh, the state and country, uh, the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, Jessica Richards, can you tell us about its impact on California? Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, the impact of HIV and AIDS in California really rippled across nearly every aspect of life. It cost thousands of lives and threatened economic stability. Statewide, HIV and AIDS became the focus of really intense medical research. It upended communities and jeopardized livelihoods. Politicians scrambled to mitigate the spread, and even legislation was adopted to address AIDS-related stigmatization and improve responses to AIDS-related emergencies. Um, in 1981, the first cases of AIDS were found among five previously healthy homosexual men in Los Angeles. Doctors were really baffled as to why homosexual men seemed especially vulnerable in this case. 
And in fact, AIDS was so mysterious that many in the gay community simply referred to the disease as it. AIDS cases were uh, concentrated among hotspots with large populations of gay men and intravenous drug users. So by 1983, uh, there were 237 cases and 71 deaths in San Francisco and 108 cases in Los Angeles, half of which were in the Hollywood and West Hollywood area. San Francisco had the highest per capita rate of AIDS in the country. And to draw attention to this issue, San Francisco's AIDS community acted politically for the first time by holding a candlelight march that drew 6,000 people. This type of grassroots organizing would become emblematic of AIDS activism and a key strategy for protesting government inaction. And as a result, Mayor Dianne Feinstein, an early supporter of AIDS research and education, pledged more than $2 million in city funds to fight AIDS. Other efforts to slow the spread of AIDS included uh, health officials targeting bathhouses, which were associated with casual and high-risk homosexual behavior. Uh, San Francisco health officials experienced significant pushback from the gay community, who argued there was little evidence to support closure and that not all bathhouse behaviors were related to spreading HIV. However, San Francisco ultimately shuttered their bathhouses. This approach differed from Los Angeles, where health officials opted to keep bathhouses open to regulate and use as educational centers for individuals whose behavior may put them at increased risk of acquiring HIV. Now, during the early 80s, the federal response to AIDS was indifferent and delayed. Although Reagan administration had claimed that AIDS was their number one priority, President Reagan wouldn't mention AIDS for six years, by which time nearly 15,000 Americans had died from AIDS. So in the absence of federal financial support, California funneled more than 20 million tax dollars into AIDS-related programs and research within the first three years, which is more than twice as much as the other 49 states combined. Yet even in California, the gay community and people living with AIDS were highly stigmatized. In Los Angeles, a conservative political group distributed pamphlets with titles like AIDS, the liberals' leprosy, and warned of a homosexual holocaust. So there was a public outcry that gay people be denied access to public facilities and jobs in fields such as healthcare, food services, and childcare. In response to this, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and West Hollywood passed ordinances banning AIDS discrimination, which was the first of its kind in the nation. And then at the height of the AIDS epidemic, novel approaches were adopted to mitigate the spread. In San Francisco, for example, an emergency public health law was used to fund clean needle exchanges. This led to long-term changes in state legislation, which now allows California counties to declare AIDS-related emergencies to fund needle exchange. Interesting. Um, and I'm just wondering, Tala, did you um, uncover any um, any interesting material on the economic effects? Yeah, I think um, the theme of the economic impact of HIV AIDS that's most important to keep in mind is that while health costs largely always fall on the individual, in the case of HIV AIDS, it was even more so. And I think Jessica mentions this a lot when she speaks about this pandemic is that the highly stigmatized nature of HIV AIDS meant that the federal government, the local government, state governments were not dedicating as much economic resources to fighting it as they would if that that stigmatization did not exist. However, despite that, um, there is ample amounts of economic literature to 
really discuss the the amount the federal government spent on on this pandemic. So by 1994, they found that um, the healthcare industry and the health insurance companies were ultimately had borne the brunt of 1.6 billion dollars in trying to fight this pandemic. And in 1994 numbers, that's huge. Um, and when you whittle that down to how much the government spent per capita, it was about $2.95 per capita annually on AIDS prevention and treatment. Um, and because of this, qualitative interviews actually found that marginalized folks who were living in California, for example, who were experiencing homelessness and addicted to drugs that were otherwise blocked from receiving welfare, um, were incentivized to be to test HIV positive so that they could get access to um, the support coming out of the federal government. Um, and in mm -hmm. fact, when looking at California's fiscal policies, there's a plethora of different policies that California um, ultimately was experimenting with to deal with this pandemic. But the fiscal policies that were found to be the most effective, one I want to highlight in particular, the SC, this SAPT block grant, which dedicated $12 million to HIV early intervention, the most effective fiscal policies were those that dealt with the intersection between AIDS and drug addiction, for example, such as the SAPT block grant. So what they did was not only did it include HIV testing and education, but it also combined that with substance abuse counseling. So when figuring out what the most effective fiscal policy is, I think the lesson learned here is that recognizing the intersection between public health and other aspects of identity is really important, especially um, with the AIDS pandemic. Great. That's a really good um, moment to turn our attention from then to now and to really uh, ask ourselves what we feel we can learn from the past. Um, what do these past episodes reveal to us in the age of COVID-19? So I'd like to focus on one area of uh, interest and concern to us all, which is the state of government preparedness and coordination, um, and ask you what uh, we can learn from these past episodes about um, how best to organize or what to avoid in, uh, in making sure that, uh, that public health uh, interests and needs are served. So either any of you, feel free to jump in. I'll uh, jump in on this uh, question. Um, so it seems like, you know, from certainly the 1918 flu pandemic and other uh, influenza pandemics and epidemics we've seen in this country that um, there is a role that the federal government can play in helping to mobilize, especially medical resources. Um, uh, things like personnel, but also things, vaccines in subsequent flu pandemics um, and uh, medicines, that sort of thing, help mobilize those and get those to states and more local levels as they need them. Um, certainly this didn't happen quite in 1918 as the federal government was not prepared and didn't have the capacity to allot these kinds of medical resources. Um, but that is a key role that they can play that sometimes cities cannot do themselves. Sometimes they alone cannot meet their de demands for uh, medical resources, nor can states. And so um, I think coordination on, uh, uh, among the division of labor between kind of federal, state, and local levels uh, is important because um, sometimes 
local uh, people, officials working at the local level are, are a bit more nimble in terms of implementing public health measures, but they need that support to get the resources they need, uh, especially medical resources. Right. It sometimes, it sometimes seems like um, we are always fighting the last war, not the next, like generals tend to do uh, in military combat. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, what we learned from the episodes that you explored about ways in which we can be more proactive moving forward. I wonder if Jessica, you have any thoughts on that? Sure, I'd be happy to speak to that. I mean, I, I think we learned a lot from the HIV AIDS crisis um, about preparedness and about coordination. Uh, in particular, we learned that in the face of a novel epidemic, uh, strong leadership and governance is really essential moving forward. And it's really critical for the government to not only set the tone for a national response, but to also take responsibility by acknowledging the public threat, uh, providing up-to-date and transparent findings to the public, and providing adequate support at the state and local level. And I think, as Kirsten mentioned, we're reminded that state and local governments can become role models in terms of being more responsive and tailoring public health interventions. Really, crises can inspire innovative approaches to mitigate disease. And I think that's a lesson that we need to carry forward with us is that these types of epidemics and pandemics are reoccurring. And it's not simply a matter of if they will happen again, but when. Right. And, you know, compared to 1918, we now have a vast arsenal of technological tools at our disposal that should allow us to uh, track and, and, and follow um, uh, dangers, public health dangers in their uh, early stages. Um, where do you think we need to be in this regard in terms of utilizing the full technological arsenal at our disposal? Well, I'd be happy to address that. I think that this is a really critical time for public health surveillance. You know, we have the digital capabilities to track and monitor cases across the country. And we have um, software, epidemiological software, to give us a really good idea of the spread of disease with pretty high confidence. And it's important that we have these systems set up in advance so that we're able to see it coming, to take preventative action. Because by the time we see the kind of spread that we're experiencing now, it's not a matter of preventing the disease, but mitigating it. You know, one other curious feature of, um, of epidemics and pandemics over the last century and of your research is um, this notion that they acquire names um, and these names symbolize and can even stigmatize. And I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on the names that have been given to uh, the various public health crises. Uh, Kirsten, Spanish flu. Yeah. And others. Yeah, so flus in particular, um, but all, many infectious diseases that become, you know, epidemics or pandemics have this long history of acquiring names often associated with their presumed origins, though in the case of kind of HIV AIDS and its original names, not necessarily place, but certain groups, um, kind of visible risk groups. Um, but certainly with flus, we see a lot of naming based on presumed origins. Um, and this can have, you know, certainly we see today somewhat detrimental effects, people focusing 
their attention on the wrong things, this leading to a stigmatization of, say, Asian Americans, um, Chinese Americans um, in the US. Um, but it also, this kind of focus on origins of the disease really takes away attention from the fact that we need to be paying attention to transmission, that um, it shouldn't be about blaming um, you know, the place where this originated or people presumed to be associated with it, which can lead to unfair discrimination and stigmatization, but also that we can't be dwelling on the origins of this. Um, that, that point is past. Right. Uh, we need to think about um, transmission. What are we going to do now? And so kind of, I think, mm -hmm. certainly we see with COVID-19 and this uh, business with calling it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, I think that is really detracting from what we need to be focusing on um, as well as creating kind of unfair stigmatization of groups that have no uh, responsibility um, for this outbreak. Right. You know, and there's perhaps no public health crisis that stigmatized a group as much in certainly in recent memory as the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, Jessica, what do we, what do we learn from that episode? Yeah, naming major public health diseases after places such as China virus in the case of COVID-19 or after a group of people such as GRID or gay-related immunodeficiency in the case of HIV and AIDS is a really serious impediment to public health. You know, as Kristen mentioned, the past teaches us that this naming convention is stigmatizing and at least a harmful outcomes for populations and individuals as a result of uh, negative social attitudes, discriminating behaviors, and even in the case of HIV-AIDS, self-stigma. Take, for instance, HIV and AIDS stigma, which can negatively affect preventive behaviors like condom use, HIV test-seeking behavior, and quality of care provided to people living with HIV and AIDS. And additionally, naming diseases after places and people, it undermines the public understanding and prevention efforts. For example, by mistakenly associating homosexuality with HIV and AIDS, it fostered a common misunderstanding that HIV and AIDS only affected the gay community. Of course, this was a critical mislabeling as no one is immune to HIV. Yeah. Um, and now Tala, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about um, lessons learned in terms of the economic consequences of pandemics having explored several over the course of the 20th century. Um, I think that in the case of 1918, it's a bit different, the economic consequence compared to COVID-19. But I think that the most important economic conversation that follows our present day reality is this choice between our economy or this false choice between the economy and saving lives and like ensuring public health. And Harvard just um, published a really interesting white paper that, like, that outlined three different scenarios in which the first scenario is very long-term extended social distancing. The second scenario is social distancing just so we can flatten the curve and then a return to normalcy. The third scenario is what I think um, some folks in the Trump administration are liking to, which is um, just returning back to normal so that we can quote unquote save our economy. Um, and in terms of like weighing in on an economic perspective here, I think that even the white paper published by Harvard ended up concluding that the third scenario of quote unquote saving our economy is not really the case. And that if we just return back to normal in instances where we should be social distancing, the 
the cost that is going to be um, carried by the health like the health industry and also just the absolute cost associated with the loss of the loss of life makes that return to normalcy the most costly economic situation. So I think the economic question facing our nation is is wrong in terms of whether or not we should be saving our economy or saving lives. And I think that ultimately the conclusion to be making here is that saving the most number of lives is what is most efficient for the economy. Great. Um, well, this has been a really illuminating episode of Then and Now. Um, I'd like to thank Kirsten, Jessica, and Tala for chatting today and for your incredibly timely work on a new Luskin Center report on pandemics past and present 100 years in California history, uh, which is available on the Luskin Center website at luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Um, and I'd like to extend a special thank you to healthcare workers, first responders, delivery people, and local and state leaders for their important and courageous work in the current pandemic. Then and Now is a production of the Luskin Center for History and Policy, and a special thanks to our producer, Maya Ferdman, Program Manager for the Luskin Center. Thank you, and until next time. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.